the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's Ask the Lawyer with Mike Connors. Got questions concerning elder or state law? Attorney Mike Connors has the answer. He was recognized in 2012 as one of New York's top lawyers by New York Magazine and brings over 30 years' experience to the table. His office number is 718-238-6500. That's 718-238-6500. Here's Mike Connors. We are gathered here on hallowed ground. Horses raised, heads bowed down. We gather here on hallowed ground to sing this song away. Welcome to Ask the Lawyer with me, Mike Connors. This show is about estate planning and elder law, at least part of the show. A little part of the show is about estate planning and elder law. The second part of the show, we talk about politics, history, religion, movies, films. Today we're going to be talking about films. We're going to be talking about one of my favorite actors, Charlton Heston. We'll be talking to author Mark Elliott, who we had on a couple of years ago about his book about John Wayne. Now we're going to be talking about Charlton Heston. But in the meanwhile... The idea behind estate planning is to pass assets from one generation to the next, paying the least amount in taxes that we need to pay legally, avoiding going through court, avoiding probate, and as far as elder law is concerned, trying to save assets from nursing home bills. Now, if you have any email questions, you can email us. Michael, what's our email address? If you want to reach us, you can contact us at askmikeconnors at gmail.com. That's askmikeconnors at gmail.com. Remember, Connors is spelled C-O-N-N-O-R-S. Okay. And today, you know, we're accompanied by my wife, Beth. Hi, everybody. Michael. Hello, everyone. And our dog, Otto, who's kind of silent right now. He's being polite. Yes. He's being polite. All right. So, Beth, do we have an email question? We do, and Michael's going to read it today. Okay. So, this question is from Joe. Dear Mike, my sister inherited the family home in 1986 in my mother's will. The estate was never probated. She also never changed the rule of the home to avoid to the title of the home, sorry, to avoid paying the New York State transfer tax. She is very secretive about her will and named her best friend as the executor. What are the consequences of the title being in my mother's name on the step up value of the home for whoever she names as the beneficiaries? My brother and I are her only direct family members. There are numerous cousins and nieces and nephews. Best regards, Joe. All right. Well, we got a little bit of a complicated situation here because of the circumstances. Now, there's no statute of limitations on when you need to probate a will. Uh, your sister can, in theory, probate the will years from now. Now, it could cause some problems because the court's going to want to know, hey, why wasn't the will probated all, all these years? And I don't know what transfer taxes we're talking to. Of course, it depends, I guess, when your mother passed away. But any tr- taxes, if there were any estate or death taxes due back in 1986, the statute of limitations is long been run. Uh, it could be a problem, not for you necessarily, but it could be a problem for your sister's eventual heirs because is the original will floating around after 35 years? Has the original will been lost? If the original will's been lost, then the house belongs to your sister, your mother's children in equal shares. Uh, is that the case? Does your sister have the original will? Did she file it but not probate it? Did she abandon her ideas of her getting the house? And, of course, I hope I hope that we don't have a senior citizen's exemption or veteran's exemption on your mother's house all these years, and somehow that tax bill is going to be coming due next you know, next year, you could say some of you are probably saying, "Well, how many how many women have a veterans exemption on the house?" Well, if she was the widow of a veteran, uh, she's entitled to a veterans exemption on the property, and and that could be considerable savings. But at the same time, upon her death, she lost that veterans exemption, and that tax bill may be enormous right now. So, I don't know why your sister didn't get things straight, but at the same time, uh, it may not be a problem for you because maybe she'll never probate that will. Maybe that will won't be probated, and you and the other siblings will own the house in equal shares. 
the same time, there's no statute of limitations to probate a will, and she could do that any time in the future. But the longer she waits, where are the witnesses? It's going to get more complicated. She didn't do things in the right way, but what else can I say? But if you have any questions about this, if if you're in that situation, you give us a call at Connors & Sullivan at 718-238-6500. 718-238-6500. We're going to take a short break, and then we're going to talk to Mark Elliott in his book about Charlton Heston. If you're a homeowner age 62 or older and are finding it hard to pay off debt, or how about enjoying your retirement years with less stress? A government-insured reverse mortgage may be the answer or might be the perfect solution for you and your family. Hi, this is Frank Melia, a certified mortgage planner. I've been a mortgage specialist for over 20 years, and I've helped countless homeowners all over the tri-state area tap into a little or a lot of their home equity so they can use it right now. This past October, the federal government made changes to the reverse mortgage loan program. Give me a call now so our office can show you how these changes affect how much money you receive and how the annual mortgage insurance costs have decreased. My job is to help you find the best solutions for your retirement goals. I do this by educating homeowners with straightforward information and answers. It's free to call and speak with me, Frank Melia, to determine if this FHA program might be able to help you and your loved ones now. Call and speak with me right now. I'll answer your questions and help you decide if a reverse mortgage is right for you and your family. Make the call now, 888-943-2646, or try me on the internet at www.quanticbank.com backslash fmelia. Once again, call 888-943-2646, and you could be on your way to a stress-free retirement. Frank Melia, NMLS number 62591. All loans provided by Quantic Bank, NMLS number 403503. Welcome to the Connors Corner segment of S lawyer with us right now is author Mark Elliott. Uh, you know, a couple of years ago, we, we talked about his book on John Wayne, searching for John Wayne, American Titan. But, you know, right now we're going to talk about another great movie actor or movie presence or whatever, Charlton Heston. Welcome again to Connor's corner, Mark. Uh, thank you. It's good to be here. Okay. So why did you decide to write a book about Charlton Heston? I've always been interested uh, in the studio era of filmmaking, the Hollywood period, and um, I try to find subjects who did something that changed the way films were made and also had a relevance that went beyond the screen. Reagan, certainly, uh, who I did a book about a few years ago um, about his Hollywood years, obviously had a, um, an effect on our culture and history beyond the screen. John Wayne, uh, John Wayne became a mythic American hero, and I thought that his life, uh, his film work was underrated, his life was a bit misunderstood um, because of his uh, political uh, positions, and his films were overlooked. With Heston... The thing that struck me about Heston most uh, was that he could have been president of the United States if he wanted to. Um, after Reagan, uh, the Republican Party approached Charlton Heston to run for president, and uh, he could have had it. Uh, he, they, they really were in a bit of turmoil uh, after, after Reagan and uh, the one-term presidency of Bush. They were looking for Bush Sr. They were looking for somebody who had the stature that Heston had. And, of course, his films were nothing if uh, not uh, a stature building. Um, he was the head of the Screen Actors Guild for a longer amount of time than Reagan had been. And uh, Ronald Reagan used his presidency of the Screen Actors Guild to catapult him into first uh, the presidency of UCLA, uh, or rather Berkeley, the president uh, presidency of Berkeley. From there, he went to the governorship of California and on to the presidency. So, and uh, George Murphy, who had been uh, a previous president of the Screen Actors Guild, also became uh, a senator from California. So uh, uh, being the head of uh, 
the screen the Screen Actors Guild in uh, California was seen by many as the first step in a political career. Uh, now uh, Heston did a lot of amazing things while he was in the guild, including. Um, your audiences might be interested in knowing saving Lincoln Center from uh, being uh, having its funding cut to zero by Reagan during a time of uh, tremendous turmoil in New York City when all the public programming, uh, the the public funding was being cut for the arts. Uh, Heston went in, and um, even though he and Reagan were great friends. They had a public battle over restoring the funds to Lincoln Center, which people may not realize in its formative years was just bleeding money, unlike today where it's solid and, and strong. Back then, um, it was considered uh, one of the follies of, of New York City. But um, because he was a, a, a stage actor, Heston, as much as he was a film actor, he, he saw the value in saving Lincoln Center, and he won. It was a protracted battle, but he got 90% of the money put back into, um, into the funding for the arts. So that was a big deal. And uh, after that, um, he, was, he, he averted a major strike uh, by the actors. He managed to settle that. He was primed to go into politics. The only, there was only one minor problem with that. He had no interest in it. <laughs> when, uh, when the Republican Party approached him and said, would you like to be president of the United States? He said, uh, oh, I'd love to. The only problem is I, I can't afford it. Uh, the job <laughs> doesn't pay enough. <laughs> and that was, you know, that was Heston's great response uh, in which um, you know, he was good-natured that way and, and wittier than people think. What he was really saying uh, was that Reagan was a politician who acted. Heston was an actor who was involved in politics. Now, what does that mean? Well, Reagan was nobody would ever say that Ronald Reagan was the greatest actor to come out of Warner Brothers. That, you know, let's not get crazy. Even though he was up for, uh, so the story goes, and I'm pretty sure it's true, Jack Warner, who loved Ronald Reagan, he thought he was just the greatest uh, thing on earth, um, he, wanted, he wanted Reagan to be in Casablanca uh, in the Humphrey Bogart role, but Reagan couldn't do it because he had been drafted into the Army, and uh, they had given him a release to make uh, This is the Army, which was a big extravaganza, uh, really a propaganda film that came out of Warner Brothers. All the studios had to make them, and because Reagan was in the film, the only non-singing performer in the film, uh, he got, a, he got um, a pass, a deferment, to be in that film. But then they wanted him um, to go in and be in the special services. Uh, and um, Warner Brother, uh, Jack Warner said, well, look, uh, Casablanca is a great propaganda film, and he'll do more for America uh, by being in that film than he will be by going in the Army. But uh, the Army said no. And, uh, of course, Bogart got the role, and the rest is history. Uh, but Reagan only, even though he was slated uh, to go overseas and uh, do some uh, uh, work with the UFO, uh, or the USO, I'm sorry. Um, uh, he only got as far as California, and he was called back to make a series of propaganda films for the soldiers right back in uh, Warner Studios. So he was um, not an actor who shook the world. Um, um, Heston with a handful of great movies, really changed film. Uh, in the 50s, when DeMille, uh, Cecil B. DeMille, wanted to remake the great Ten Commandments epic, the silent film from 1925, he chose Charlton Heston because of the impact Heston had had 
uh, in The Greatest Show on Earth, the 1951 circus film that amazingly won Best Picture of the Year that year over some quite superior movies. But Hollywood being Hollywood and politics being politics, that year it was DeMille's year. And one of the things that DeMille loved about that film was that Heston uh, played a leader. You know, he was the head of the circus, the manager of the circus, if people remember the film at all, Ringling Brothers. And that character was a stand-in for DeMille himself, who was the leader of the production. So when it came time to make the Ten Commandments, um, DeMille originally thought that uh, Victor Mature could play uh, uh, Moses, but Mature, had, who had done so well with Samson and Delilah in 1949 with uh, uh, DeMille, and had brought back what they call the uh, robe and sandals films, uh, you know, the biblical films. Uh, because of that, he thought that Mature would be great, but Mature went off and did another Bible film uh, in uh, Italy, and DeMille then eliminated him. Considered for a while Bill Boyd. Bill Boyd, if you if that name yeah, Hopalong Cassidy, oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Hopalong Cassidy. That's right. Uh, but Hoppy didn't make the final cut, and it went to Heston, and it was a gamble. But uh, Heston, of course, made that part his own, and we see the film every year on TV. It's known throughout the world, and one of the most successful films of the 50s, it saved Paramount from, from going bankrupt. That's how important that film was. Then three years later, when MGM was going bankrupt, as all the studios eventually faced, uh, they wanted to do a remake uh, uh, or an homage, as they politely called it, to the Ten Commandments. So they did Ben-Hur. And if you look at Ben-Hur, it's really the same film as the Ten Commandments. If I had a lot of time, I'd break it down for you. But it's essentially a Jewish fellow who rejects his Judaism, becomes a prince, then accepts his Judaism, becomes a slave, and then at the end uh, becomes a hero. Fictional character, but um, nonetheless, uh, the films are very similar. Uh, for that film, Heston won an Academy Award. So he was an actor, um, and and those two films bookend, I think, the great period of his um, Hollywood uh, career. So uh, politics for him was far less gratifying than performing. Uh, and I found that uh, as as a human being, uh, off the screen, I was uh, quite fortunate to get to know his son, Frazier, Frazier yeah. and, and his daughter, Holly, uh, who were completely open and cooperative with this book without uh, asking for any editorial uh, control, which is, uh, you know, a writer's dream. And they just opened up the archives. Now, while we, we were writing the book, uh, Heston's wife died, and uh, Gloria. They had been married for 66 years. This was the first woman Heston had ever gone out with. Uh, he met her at Northwestern University, where they were both in the drama division, and um, got married. She stayed with him all during the lean years when they were both in New York City, uh, when Heston posed nude for the Artist League to make enough money to buy food, uh, when they both acted on Broadway, and he was then discovered and brought uh, to Hollywood to, uh, to make a series of uh, films prior to being discovered by DeMille. The thing about him that I found so unusual and... I guess I hate to use the word um, uplifting. I still want people to read the book. Was um, he was a family man? Uh, he he raised his children well. Uh, he lived in Hollywood, but was never drawn into that Hollywood Sunset Strip craziness. Uh, he worked his entire life, and he had a strong moral. Uh, fiber, a uh, strong moral sense that guided him, 
and allowed him to have a measure of peace in his life that most people in Hollywood will um, uh, eagerly trade off uh, in Faustian deals to get where they want to go. And I think uh, getting back to politics, that's one of the reasons he resisted that. He thought politics was um, too political. <laughs> it, it was too compromising uh, for what he wanted to do. He knew it too well. And so uh, he preferred to go into producing, uh, extend his own career beyond the leading man years, and I think was quite content. And I found that his story was uh, inspiring, but not in an it's insipid way. Um, he really... Uh, he was a unique individual, and I really enjoyed writing that story and showing how he was able to overcome so much in in his life, including being born in the woods of North Michigan and um, having his name changed uh, from his first father's real name to his wife, his mother's uh, second husband, whose name was Heston. And one day she came in and said, all right, now you're Charlton Heston. And so the, all the identity issues uh, that, he, that he experienced as a child, I've always found that when I write about performers, whether they're actors or singers or writers, um, they have a need to, to assume identities um, in a role. They role play. And you can usually find out why. Uh, when you study their lives. And with Heston, part of what he was searching for was a real identity. And he did it by uh, marrying a woman who reminded him of his mother and staying with her for the whole nine yards, the whole 66 years that they were together until he passed away. He was able to find an identity on screen as, you know, the chisel-jawed, Charlton Heston, Moses, Ben-Hur, but also off-screen off as, as a natural leader in the Union and as a, a strong family man. So those are the reasons uh, that I chose to write about him. Okay, now, you know, what are your some of your performances? And let's maybe stay away from Ten Commandments and Ben-Hur, but what is your favorite Charlton Heston performance? Uh, well... I like uh, I like Soylent Green. <laughs> strangely enough, I find that to be uh, a, a quite an entertaining film. All, all the uh, the science fiction films, uh, of course, Planet of the Apes. Uh, you know, Planet of the Apes was uh, written by Rod Rod Serling. Uh, it was rewritten by Rod Serling. It was actually written by a writer who couldn't get it made, and, and then Heston bought it and gave it to Serling to turn into, I guess, uh, an episode of The Twilight Zone expanded for the screen. But, I, you know, I like the message in that film uh, that uh, somehow mankind will survive and repeat itself and, and try to avoid its past mistakes, and that the human is the alien and uh, the the uh, ape men are the humans. It, it, it's a kind of an interesting, certainly Serling type uh, movie uh, that I find quite uh, uh, um, quite appealing and entertaining. There's a film he did. Um, we call it the Ant Film, where uh, <laughs> he's a plantation owner in South America. This is before the Ten Commandments, and in the middle of the film, there's a red ant invasion. And that's all, the only thing people really remember about that film, and it's probably the only thing worth remembering, but Heston is really wonderful in, in that film. I, I strongly recommend, uh, if people can find it, maybe sometimes TCM might uh, play it. But he also... Naked yeah, Jungle, and, you know, yeah. Yeah, the Naked Jungle, right. Uh, um, we call it the ad film. <laughs> <laughs> uh, he also, you know, later on he did, uh, he was in the Colby's, which was an offshoot of Dynasty, and I thought his work on TV was a little bit less um, 
granite jawed, a little bit less uh, grim than some of his film work. And I thought, you know, he began in TV. He began in live TV in the 50s in New York City when uh, you would go on and in a, a studio which might be six feet by six feet, you'd have to recreate Rome with uh, three cameras in there as well. And, and uh, all of that was done live. I went out on the air with all the mistakes uh, and being uh, done. And that was great training. And uh, what that did for Heston was it, it gave him a discipline in uh, how to perform without being grandiose. I mean, uh, a, a lot of what you see in Heston is, is very um, withheld, held back. Um, because his training was that, that you didn't really move if you didn't have to. And you see it in a lot of his films. You see him um, kind of uh, one of those verbal actors who will act with his voice and act with his face, but not a physical actor like, say, uh, uh, Gene Kelly, uh, someone who gesticulated all, all over the place. He was a different kind of actor. And I think a lot of it came from TV, early TV, and what he did later in TV also, um, I think, showed him off very well. Let me ask you, how did he get involved in in Hollywood? I mean, you talked about the TV and, and whatever. Now, did, we talked about Ronald Reagan in World War II. Where was Charlton Heston in World War II? Well, Heston was um, in the war. You know, he was, he was uh, going to Northwestern studying drama, and he was there when Pearl Harbor happened. And like every young man his age uh, at that time, he thought he wanted to personally win the war. You know, he wanted to enlist, go over and uh, fight. You know, the, the outrage of that attack really struck home for him. So uh, just before he enlisted, he asked uh, Gloria to marry him, and um, she said yes. So uh, um, it was a whirlwind relationship, which you can read about in the book. Uh, it didn't just happen overnight. Uh, she was kind of reluctant to be with him. She thought he was a, a hayseed, but eventually he won her over. Anyway, uh, he asked her to marry him. He was stationed, I think, in North Carolina, but I'd have to check that. And, uh, and scheduled to fly to uh, training. She came down, and the day before he left, they got married in a little church, and um, he went off to training, wrote to her every day. Then he was stationed up in the Aleutian Islands. The Aleutian Islands, which are off uh, the coast of uh, Alaska, were a target of the Japanese. Or the Japanese were constantly trying to invade uh, Alaska, the Aleutians, as a way to get to the mainland, the West Coast mainland of the United States, and do some more damage. So he, be, he was a radio operator during the war. Now, unlike Reagan, um, Heston actually saw action. He, would, he was uh, um, a flying radio man, which meant that when the planes went up, he was on the radio uh, guiding them um, from uh, from the bases, uh, where to go, where to turn, what to do. An important job. In, in those days, that was that was how they communicated. And um, he he his one of his planes was shot down. Uh, he was in a um, an accident at the base and uh, hurt. Um, but you know the, the thing about Heston and the war is, even though he was a legitimate hero and uh, was in what you would call today sorties, maybe uh, 45 sorties, uh, going up in the planes uh, as a radio operator. He never talked about it. Uh, that whole generation came back, and uh, even though Hollywood made a billion movies about uh, World War II, and guys like John Wayne, who never served, became uh, Hollywood heroes, uh, Heston was the real thing. He, uh, he served. Um, did uh, did his two years, had to recover, came back, and um, he and uh, his wife 
moved to New York City. They lived on, I think it was 46th Street in the theater district, uh, which is where uh, we are now on, uh, in Midtown Manhattan and where you are in, in Brooklyn, um, and began their careers as, uh, as actors and models. Um, so he was never, never one to brag never, about anything. And he was not a, um, uh, not someone who exploited that war effort. But he, like Jimmy Stewart, um, he was, it was a legitimate uh, war hero. He didn't quite have the, um, the level of heroism that Stewart had, which was part of the role of the dice. I mean, Stewart flew the channel and, um, was on bombing missions where he was the fighter pilot. Um, and uh, as heroic as they come. But like Stewart, you never heard about it. Uh, Those men wanted to leave that behind and live the life that they fought the right to live, uh, fought for the right to live. And that's what Heston did. Uh, I'm sure it benefited him uh, in his many roles as a, a hero, because he understood what bravery was. He understood what fighting for something meant. And um, so that basically was his wartime experience. Mark, we need to take a short break. You're listening to Ask the Lawyer with me, Mike Connors. We're talking about Charlton Heston. Mike Connors, host of Ask the Lawyer and published in New York Magazine's top-rated lawyers. Whether assisting a client with drafting a will or trust, power of attorney, health care proxy, nursing home plan, or other matter, Connors & Sullivan's goal is always the protection of their clients' rights and interests. Connors & Sullivan Attorneys at Law, PLLC, has dedicated attorneys that can help you with estate planning, elder law, and probate. They listen to their clients to learn about their families, their financial picture, and their long-term goals to create a comprehensive plan to meet your objectives. They assist with the complex tax matters that are often involved in estate planning and probate. Contact Connors & Sullivan Attorneys at Law, PLLC, with offices in Brooklyn, Queens, Midtown Manhattan, and Staten Island to schedule a free consultation with an attorney. 718-238-6500. That's 718-238-6500. And listen to Ask the Lawyer every Saturday morning at 8 on AM 570 The Mission, WMCA. Welcome back to Ask the Lawyer with me, Mike Connors. We're talking to Mark Elliott about Charlton Heston. So uh, how does he get to Hollywood? How does that happen? Well, there was a producer. Uh, In those days, when uh, uh, there was a trail, there was a physical trail that actors followed. Uh, Most actors who went into um, uh, the business after the war, benefited uh, from the G.I. Bill. The G.I. Bill is the reason why all those character actors you see in Hollywood in the 50s going into the 60s um, are in the business. Most of them wanted to meet girls. Um, every actor will tell you uh, who went to acting school on the G.I. Bill uh, especially character actors. So now they wanted to meet girls. They wanted to meet pretty women. So they became actors, which is fine. You know, that uh, is as good as any way, I guess. Um, but Heston benefited from the GI Bill. It helped him get an, a, an apartment in the city and uh, and make it through with his uh, with his bill money uh, and uh, study acting and um, put food on the table. He managed to get um, uh, some small Broadway roles. As a matter of fact, one of the shows he was in was with the um, Lund Fontaines, hmm. Alfred Lund and Lynn Fontaine, who were the big, big Broadway stars of uh, of the forties and fifties. So the the route was for all actors who wanted to be in the business. You come to New York, you get on television live TV, you get into a Broadway show, and then, like a ball player, um, you wait for a scout from Hollywood, from the big leagues. And the scouts would come, see every show, see every TV uh, production, and look for talent that they could then, um, that they could then recruit 
and bring to Hollywood. Um, that's what happened with Hal Wallace. Hal Wallace was uh, a big uh, Paramount scout who became a producer and um, is known, I guess, mostly today for his Elvis Presley movies and his uh, Martin and Lewis films. But he also, I think he did Casablanca, too. Right. So he was a serious uh, True grit. player yeah, yeah, in, in Hollywood. He came for Paramount, and he saw uh, something that Heston did on Broadway and then on TV and offered him a deal to come in, uh, to come to Hollywood for Paramount and to do and to audition for uh, DeMille. Well, Heston didn't want to go. Uh, Heston loved New York City. <laughs> and in the 40s, I think New York City was a great place to love if you were broke. Uh, today, maybe not so much, but uh, in those days, you could get by on a, you know, a dime and a, a dream, as they say. Uh, he didn't want to go because they didn't offer his wife a deal. And he, didn't, he had been away f from her for two years in the Army, in the war, and he didn't want to leave her alone in New York City in a small walk-up apartment. But she said, no, no, you have to go. It's a, it's a big break. Go and try it. So he flew out there by himself and uh, auditioned, um, knocked around. Uh, they, they gave him some space at Paramount. They signed him to a conditional contract, but he didn't do anything. And he never got to audition for DeMille. And, that, and after uh, a month or two, I guess it was, maybe a little longer, he decided he was going to pack his bags and he was homesick. He wanted to go back to New York. Uh, as he was leaving the studio, uh, in his car, they had given him a, a car to use while he was there. He put his suitcase in the car. DeMille was standing about 20 feet away and was having trouble casting uh, the, uh, um, the circus film. Um, Greatest show on earth. Greatest show on earth. And uh, he looked around and he said to his assistant, who is that guy? And she said, oh, that's uh, some actor who we signed up at the studio. How come I haven't seen him? Uh, well, I don't know. We haven't gotten around to bringing him. He wants to go home. Well, bring him to my office. Tell him to unpack. And I want to see him. And that's exactly how Heston got into Greatest Show on Earth. And it was all DeMille, and it was happenstance. If he had left 20 minutes earlier or 20 minutes later, he might never have um, wound up in Hollywood. So it's TV, Broadway, uh, the big leagues, Hollywood. And, of course, once, once he made the film... Um, and Gloria came out and stayed with him. And uh, in, in order to justify her being on all the sets, she became a photographer. And she was quite a good photographer and uh, well-known in the business as uh, someone on set who, who uh, did all the studio shots. And um, that became her career. She gave up uh, what was a successful modeling and an acting career that was well on its way, because in those days, in the 40s and the 50s, that's what women did. Uh, they chose between careers or marriage, and if you wanted to keep your marriage intact, especially in show business, um, you gave up your career, unless you were a star, which she wasn't. So she gave up the career, had children, uh, one, uh, the boy uh, was theirs. The girl was adopted. Um, he built a house in, um, um, in up on Mulholland Drive, which is in the hills of Hollywood, and um, he, he called it the house that her built, <laughs> Ben-Hur. It was Ben-Hur money. Uh, his father, who was an architect, the real father, he found in Detroit. He brought him out, and he had his father build the house. So, you know, there's, there's some kind of something beautiful there where the father literally rebuilds the home that was destroyed uh, when he and the mother were divorced. So, you know, all this stuff that worked in Heston's uh, favor was all stuff that, whether it was conscious 
unconscious, if you want to say it was Freudian, whatever you want to say to it, he managed to reconstruct the home he had never had as a boy. And that, to me, is very powerful, um, uh, what, uh, what he did in his life. And stayed in touch with his father, really, uh, until the end, until the end of his father's life. Um, and I think that's why marriage was so important to him. Uh, that he really wanted to prove that uh, you could be married happily and in love with a woman. And uh, it's not to say they didn't have problems. Uh, in, you know, when he, he did a lot of movies in Europe, in Italy, in Rome, and uh, she always came along. And the daughter, Holly, said to me that one of the reasons she went along was because Heston, being such a good-looking guy, you know, it was did love scenes with all these beautiful Hollywood actresses, and um, you don't want to let your husband be three thousand miles away uh, in, in the arms of uh, Hollywood's most beautiful women, uh, including Sophia Loren and and others um, who uh, were known to have onset romances. So um, just to ensure that that couldn't happen, she would go along with the kids and be the photographer. So, you know, difficult under the best of times in that business. Um, but he understood that, you know, he had a commitment. And uh, I think for the most part he kept that, that commitment as much as, he, as much as he humanly could. Let's go back a second. Greatest show on earth. We talked about Jimmy Stewart and Charlton Heston. Do you have any idea what how they got along on the set? Well, they got along beautifully. Um, uh, Heston Heston idolized uh, uh, Jimmy. Uh, both of them were war heroes. Both of them were um, uh, in Hollywood. Uh, Stewart, you know, is in that film, and you never see him. Uh, he, he's, he wears clown makeup the whole film because he's hiding from the law. Uh, it's a little bit ridiculous. The plot of that film doesn't really hold up under too much scrutiny, but okay. Um, and uh, he was a bachelor at the time. I think he was either a bachelor or had just gotten married. And they, they were, you know, they were different types. Jimmy also lived in New York in the beginning of his career. Um, his roommate ha- happened to be Henry Fonda. Uh, and uh, while they were on opposite sides of the political scale, they were great friends their whole, their whole career, Fonda and Stewart. Less so with, uh, with Jimmy. I-, I-, I think that Jimmy thought that um, if he thought anything uh, negative about Heston, it was that he was too green. He 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 was he wasn't really um, ready uh, for that role. Um, but you know, Jimmy Stewart was not a, a a small guy. I don't mean physically. He wasn't a small person. And it was an ensemble film. And uh, you know, they got along well, and they stayed friends um, throughout. Also had similar uh, political. Uh, careers, although in Heston's Heston's politics changed radically um, through his career. He began as a, you know as a big big liberal and marched um, marched in the Washington uh, in the Washington March with Marlon Brando and Harry Belafonte, uh, Martin Luther King. All of that changed uh, later on, but. Uh, uh, Jimmy Stewart was always um, on the conservative side. Let me ask you, what led to Charlton Heston's conversion? <laughs> well, uh, part of it was the politics of Hollywood. Part of it, it was how he saw uh, the strikes that were uh, being attempted uh, through the Screen Actors Guild. He, he felt that uh, the left in Hollywood was, was too liberal, uh, that, that they were working against what they needed to be doing. And the other thing 
and this this happened to a lot of veterans, uh, not just uh, Jimmy. Uh, Vietnam and uh, uh, Charlton Heston. Vietnam outraged him. Not the war. Uh, the reaction against the war um, that really pushed him to the right. You know, a lot of people may not be aware that he made several trips to Vietnam uh, and um, suffered some personal losses in his family. Uh, and he thought that those soldiers over there needed the support of uh, America, not. Um, and not to be treated the way they were treated. Uh, he understood protesting and all that, but he didn't understand um, how those veterans were treated. And that, that really began his conversion over to the right. Also, his friend, uh, Reagan, who had been a, uh, a, a Roosevelt Republican when he was a young man, uh, and who became, uh, sorry, a Roosevelt uh, Democrat. Uh, he became um, uh, a, a Republican, and he helped convince uh, Heston that the Republican Party was really the old Democratic Party, in his, in his view. All right, one, we're running out of time, but one, one final uh, question. Why Charlton Heston? He can say lines that no other actor in the history of Hollywood, I think, could get away with. What's so enduring? Why? Why was he, you know, enduring? I guess why? Why? Why is he so memorable? Well, uh, ironically, the line that most people remember him for uh, is not from a film. It's from uh, the NRA, where, <laughs> uh, which was uh, uh, they can take these this rifle out of my cold, dead hands, that thing. And uh, uh, we haven't got time to go into the NRA, but um, they actually did some things that helped him in his personal life. He needed a venue. Um, his career was petering out, and they needed a spokesman. So uh, it was a happy marriage there. It wasn't a spontaneous statement. Uh, it had been used many times by other people, and uh, he happened to, to have rehearsed that whole speech. But sometimes you say something, and, uh, you know, all the great statements that you make in your career get dwarfed by something you say uh, at a political rally. And that's the one that sticks. I know when I was doing, when I was writing the book, um, when I would say Charlton Heston, people would say the same thing to me. Uh, they would say, oh, Moses, you're writing the life of Moses. Or they would say, oh, over my, out of my cold, dead hands, everybody would say. So I guess he was identified uh, with that uh, and uh, stayed with him. But I think beyond that, in terms of film, uh, I think it... Um, it's uh, playing most. I mean, that's what uh, that was the film that uh, identified him, stayed with him, and for the rest of his life, uh, people, you know, you see it every year, as I said on TV. So it's a hard film to forget. And uh, you know, I always find it amusing that uh, this uh, um, Protestant actor from the Midwest. Uh, is best known for playing two Jewish characters, one of them uh, Moses and one of them the fictional Ben-Hur. So in Hollywood, anything is possible, as they say. <laughs> and uh, Charlton Heston, uh, America's greatest uh, Jew, who, of course, was a Protestant. So uh, that's uh, part of the fun of it. Yeah. Um, well, that's, that's America and that's Hollywood. The name of the book, <laughs> Charlton Heston, Hollywood's Last Icon, the author, Mark Elliott, thank you for being on Connor's Corner. Sure thing, anytime. I'll see you when uh, my uh, my Merle Haggard book comes Yeah, out. I'd love to see that, too, yeah. When I was in the yeah. service, Merle Haggard was one of my favorites when I was oh, in the yeah. Army. Yeah. Giant. Yes. All right. Thank all you right. so much. Thank you. Thank you, sir. Bye. We all know someone who's been touched by cancer. It's the second leading cause of death, and it took the life of my father, John Wayne. 
But even in his final days, he was thinking about helping others and publicly campaigning to raise awareness about cancer. His courage and grit inspired our family to do everything we could to fight the big C, as my dad called it. So we did something about it and founded the John Wayne Cancer Institute 35 years ago to advance life-saving research. Our discoveries are fundamentally changing the way cancer is treated around the world. Cures are within our reach, but we can't do it alone. I'm Patrick Wayne, and I'd be honored if you joined us in the fight against cancer. You can make a lasting legacy by helping to eradicate this deadly disease. Together, we can save lives. To learn more, visit jwcigiving.org. That's jwcigiving.org. The Guild for Exceptional Children, or GEC, has been providing excellent care to children and adults with developmental disabilities since 1958. It is our mission to help build better lives and brighter futures for the people in our care. We serve nearly 1,000 individuals each day and are proud that 90 cents of every dollar is used for actual services. Please visit www.gecbklyn.org or call 718-833-6633 to learn more. You know, Charlton Heston really, you know, I, I really enjoyed his performances, whatever. And I remember we had Frazier Heston on a couple of years back. And, and Frazier directed, that's Charlton Heston's son, he directed uh, his father in a number of fairly good TV films. And maybe the, the best 80s. adaptation of Treasure Island. Yeah, I think it was. Yeah. I think yeah, it was the best, you know, application of Treasure's Island. And, you know, and I remember L.Q. Jones once, he talked about a dispute. Well, one, he had a dispute with Peck and Paul on the set of Major Dundee. And also, we understand he had a dispute with Charlton Heston. And, Michael, what's the quote you got there? Well, okay, this is from Wikipedia, so you can decide for yourself how reliable that is. Which but. it's not. A lot of the actors <laughs> who've been on here say, I never said that. <laughs> the production of the movie was very troubled. Peck and Paul was often drunk on set and was supposedly so abusive toward the cast that Heston had to threaten him with a cavalry saber in order to calm him down. He even charged Peck and Paul on horseback at one point, leading the director to panic and order the camera crane he was working on to be raised quickly. You know, Michael, we have to get the L.Q. Jones interview out if we can again, because he had some great stories about Sam Peckinpah. Absolutely. And, you know, and uh, you know, and of course, he also talked about really, I think probably Sam Peckinpah's finest film, Ride the High Country, and we talked about that last you know, last time. You know, with Randolph Scott and Joel McRae and James Drury and L.Q. Jones. You know, of course, the reason I bring James Drury up, he just passed away, and he was he was in that film with uh, L.Q. Jones. In any event, it's time for us to wrap it up for another week. David and Kate's going to take us home. But thank you for listening to Ask the Lawyer with me, Mike Connors, accompanied by my wife, Beth. Bye-bye, everybody. And my son, Michael. Thanks for joining us. See you next time. We're gathered here on hallowed ground to sing this soul away.